This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This is the second episode in a three-part series covering the crimes attributed to the Atlanta Ripper, a person or persons who targeted Black women in Atlanta, Georgia, for at least three years. Please listen to episode one before listening to episode two. There is frequent discussion of graphic violence and crime scene description in this episode. Listener discretion is advised. This is The Fall Line. And who shall separate the dust what later we shall be? Whose keen discerning eye will scan and solve the mystery? From Common Dust by Georgia Douglas Johnson. July 1911. Along the northeast coast of the United States, there blazed one of the worst heat waves on record. More than 200 died. People stretched out in the streets in New York Central Park. They doused themselves in water just to get relief. And down south in Atlanta, another crisis was in motion, with another unrelenting death toll. A murderer or murderers, not heat, was responsible, and the Black women of Atlanta, Georgia, were the targets. Atlanta's African-American academics, religious leaders, and businessmen have been demanding police attention and action for some time, but by that summer of 1911, they'd received no satisfactory response. So, on July 12, 1911, the Reverend Henry Hugh Proctor, one of the most famous and influential citizens of Atlanta, published a petition in the Atlanta Constitution. There, in the paper, for all to see, were the names of murdered women dating back to 1909. Within the last two years, 17 colored women have been found murdered in this community as follows. April 5, 1909, Della Reed, found dead in a trash pile near 71 Rankin Street. September 7, 1909, unknown, found dead in Peachtree Creek. March 5, 1910, Estella Baldwin, concussion of brain. April 5, 1910, Georgia Brown, gunshot wound. April 6, 1910, Maddie Smith, gunshot wound. May 6, 1910, Lavinia Austin, gunshot wound. May 23rd, 1910, Sarah Dukes, gunshot wound. Francis Lampkin, gunshot wound. September 4th, 1910, Eliza Griggs, gunshot wound. October 6th, 1910, Maggie Brooks, killed on Hill Street near West Point and Beltline. February 3rd, 1911, Lucinda McNeil, throat cut. May 8, 
1911, Rosa L. Rivers, shot. May 29, 1911, Mary Walker, throat cut. June 15, 1911, Addie Watts, throat cut. June 29, 1911, Lizzie Watkins, West Oakland Street, throat cut. July 2nd, 1911, Lena Sharp, throat cut. That final name on the list, Lena Sharp, indirectly she marked a turning point in the news coverage of the Atlanta Ripper, the investigation of the crimes, and in the creation of a public image of the murderer. Shortly following her attack was the first time that a living witness and near victim was able to offer details on the would-be killer. Per the Atlanta Georgian, Alina Sharp and her daughter, Emma Lou, lived on Hanover Street in what is now Southeast Atlanta. Based on census records, Emma Lou was 23 in the summer of 1911, and Lena was 48 or 49. Emma Lou had spent a tense few weeks worrying over her safety and her mother's. According to author Steve Fennessy, who published one of the earliest modern accounts of the Ripper, a neighbor of theirs, Addie Watts, had recently been attacked. Addie is recorded in Proctor's petition as having had her throat cut, but according to Fennessy and archival reports, she'd also been bludgeoned with a brick and a, quote, coupling pen. The 1910 census puts Addie at 25 or 26 years old at the time of her attack. According to Steve Fennessy, Addie Watts was dragged into nearby bushes after the initial attack, another aspect that would become a Ripper signature. Often, the crimes attributed to the killer involved an initial incapacitating blow, then removal to another area, close by but perhaps less in public view, where the victim was slashed. In some instances, the knife attacks seemed to have begun during the removal and blood trails were left, eventually leading to the victims. Emma Lou, like other women in the Atlanta area, was well aware of the attacks, even before Addie's death. When we interviewed Jeff Wells, author of The Atlanta Ripper, he highlighted how heightened fear was in the summer of 1911. Discussion about these murders and the, the danger and the chaos on the streets was all over their neighborhoods. It was in the paper. Ministers like Dr. Henry Hugh Proctor were preaching about it from the pulpit in the city's dives and saloons and the places of ill repute. People were scared because some of these women were out late at night. Politicians were talking about it. It was in the papers. And then, of course, you do have a police presence. I mean, they are involved to a certain extent um, heavier as we go on, but they are investigating these murders as they happen. So the women, these young women, knew that he was out there, and, and I'm sure they were terrified to be on the streets. As Jeff Wells said, church leaders have been addressing the attacks during service. Reverend Proctor himself warned women to stay off the streets, something not so easy for those who had jobs. He also made a few statements implying that morally speaking, many women were where they shouldn't have been, that they'd been socializing in the evening at dance halls or clubs, and that this behavior was putting them in danger. He warned them to stay home. 
As the attacks continued, his tone grew sharper and more urgent. Whether or not this sentiment, victim-blaming as we recognize it now, was true, Emma Lou Sharp was at home on July 2nd. It was her mother she was worried about. According to Chris Fennessy, Lena Sharp had gone out for groceries that evening. Lena was older than other women in the canonical series of murders, most of whom were young adults, no older than their early 20s. Emma Lou, though, she fit the pattern. According to Corinna Underwood's book, Murder and Mystery in Atlanta, Lena had only been gone from their home for an hour. But Emma Lou went looking for her anyway. It's likely she was driven to do so by the stories of attacks that have been circulating her neighborhood all summer. And when Emma Lou visited the local market, the shopkeeper told her that her mother hadn't been there that day. Then where exactly was Lena? We've pieced together what comes next from a number of Atlanta Constitution articles. It seems that Emma Lou began the walk home, ostensibly looking for her mother as she went, but she was soon approached by a stranger. He was said to be slim and well-dressed in at least one report, and Emma Lou's quoted description is of a man who was, quote, tall, black, broad-shouldered, and wearing a broad-brimmed black hat. According to the Constitution, he spoke to her politely, though in 1911, that would have been inherently untoward. The man reportedly asked Emmalou how she was doing. Very well, she answered. The Atlanta Constitution reports that as she attempted to continue on her way, the man blocked her path. It's then reported that he told her, quote, don't be afraid. I never hurt girls like you. She must have moved past him at that point because, moments later, she was attacked from behind. Emma Lou began screaming for help, so loudly that she roused her neighbors who ran to her aid. The man was gone, and Emma Lou would discover she'd been grievously injured, stabbed in the back. Later, after Emma Lou had been taken for medical help, a group of men from the neighborhood set out to look for her mother, Lena. Lena's body was found near some railroad tracks and not far from her own house on Hanover Street. The Constitution reported that there was, quote, a huge gash in her throat and her head lay in a pool of blood, end quote. The article also reported that an inquest would be held. After Lena's death, a local undertaker, L.L. Lee, offered a reward in the case, $25 or about $700 today and he called on other leading Black businessmen to do the same. An article discussing this reward appeared on July 4th, 1911, and directly above it was a column discussing a mass meeting of white Atlanta citizens at a local church. But they hadn't gathered to discuss the killings. Rather, they met to plan how they'd continue to prevent Black Atlantans from moving into a particular Northwest neighborhood. Hundreds attended. By July 11th, there would be another gathering at another church, this time of over 1,000 Black residents, organized by a number of pastors. Per the Constitution, the meeting was part informational session and part community organization, and perhaps a precursor to the petition Reverend Proctor would publish on the 12th. The report states that the meeting's attendees resolved to help police, quote, whenever possible, quote, to seek an end to the terror, but that resolution was not in sight. With the survival of Emma Lou Sharp, though, 
The investigation had its first real lead, a witness who could give a description of her attacker. It was widely assumed that the same man who stabbed Emmalou had also killed her mother, Lena. If police could find a suspect, there was a chance that Emma might be able to identify him. And as 1911 wore on, that became increasingly important. Last episode, we mentioned a string of jewelry heists that had been occurring in Northwest Atlanta. Combined with the newspaper's growing focus on describing the Southeast Atlanta murders as, quote, Jack the Ripper style, the coverage was picking up steam. And those outside the city were taking notice of Atlanta's crime wave. When we interviewed Jeff Wells, author of The Atlanta Ripper, he told us that kind of reporting was seen as very bad for business, not the New South image that Atlanta wanted to project. Less than a week after the murder of Lena Sharp and the brutal stabbing of her daughter, Emmalou, another woman would be attacked. Mary Yuddle, 22 years old, who worked as a cook in a private home. The Constitution provided the following details. Mary was walking home on July 8th when she heard a noise echoing out of an alley. A long whistle. Mary paused, wondering if the call was meant for her, coming from someone she knew. But then there appeared a man, half in shadow. According to the July 9th article, he said to her, quote, throw up your hands, I want you. Reportedly, Mary screamed and turned and ran back to the home of her employer. That man, who the paper calls W.M. Seltzer, went out into the street with his gun but didn't see anyone. He then called police. The tone of that article is oddly light, calling the event a false alarm. But by July 10th, another woman would be dead. Sadie Hawley was described as the eighth victim of the Ripper, though the petition that was published directly after her death, the one organized by Reverend Proctor, included more victims than that and women who died by homicide as far back as 1909. Sadie Hawley was the last entry on that petition, her death little more than a day old when the Constitution article came out. In it, that jovial tone was gone. According to Corinna Underwood, the article was the first time that an alleged Ripper victim had been mentioned on the front page of the paper. Then again, the coverage of her death was combined with Reverend Proctor's petition and a description of the continued home robberies that had been occurring in Northwest Atlanta. And the Atlanta Georgian, the other local paper, noted that the Ripper, quote, usually struck on Saturday. So his attack on Sadie came, quote, two days late. Press had tried to assign a Saturday pattern to the deaths, but it didn't always hold. Weekends, though, Friday through Sunday, they seemed to contain most of the attacks. Sadie Holly's case was marked in a number of ways. Like some of the other victims, she was struck and then dragged to a second location where her throat was cut. She was the first victim, though, to have an item removed by the killer or assumed to be removed by the killer. Both her shoes were missing. Though the rock used to bludgeon her was found in a nearby field, her shoes were never recovered. They didn't fall off when she was dragged. And another new development followed Sadie's murder, too. An arrest made in the case. Others would follow, but to no full resolution. 
And in the meantime, the Atlanta press began to sort through the murders, looking for a pattern for a point of origin. In the high summer of 1911, they finally devoted column space to some of the earlier crimes, including those that had previously barely gotten a mention. One of those crimes was the murder of Rosa Trice, who died in February of 1911. The Constitution touches on her death in the same article that included the petition, the robberies, and the killing of Sadie Hawley. Though her death was described only briefly, quote, head crushed, throat cut, Rosa Trice's death has stood out to author Jeff Wells. All of the crimes were devastating, but some showed an intensity of overkill that haunted him long after his research was over. When we visited Jeff Wells in Milledgeville, he'd just gone over his book again to mark particular passages, and he'd come upon the description of Rosa's murder. He told us that he'd had a nightmare after rereading it, and that he'd had them when he wrote the book, too. To show you just how deep this stuff is, and to show you just what kind of mind these murderers or this murderer had, if you look at the murder of Rosa Trice, sad situation. And the papers, the article that I have quoted here says, the murder had evidently been committed sometime during the night, and she had lain in the street for some hours after death. Her body had been dragged for some distance by her assailant. No weapon was left to show the manner of the crime. The left side of her head was crushed with some blunt instrument. She had received a stab in the jaw, and her throat was cut. So this becomes even sicker, you know, as we start to move into the middle of these of this murder spree or this these series of murders, you see that's I mean, that's mutilation to a certain extent. I mean you've you've bashed someone's head in, you cut the the throat, stab the jaw. I don't know, it doesn't say which one comes first. I'm sure probably a medical practitioner could tell us which one most likely did the deed first, or a criminologist could say, well, in in the history or in the tradition of murders uh, like this, usually the assailant would do this first. I don't know. But what this does tell me is that he was determined to kill and maim this body Now, some people will say that may be because he knew her. I have heard that before, that crimes of passion or crimes of revenge, a lot of times they happen to be more brutal and more in-depth, you know. So I don't know, but the fact that he dragged her body through the streets to leave, you know, blood trail, or maybe, I don't know from the article, maybe she was dragged through the streets before she was murdered. And if that was the case, you'd, you probably would have heard that, unless he hit her in the head and made her, you know, made her unconscious, you know, bludgeoned her unconscious, and then finished the rest after he dragged her around for a minute or two. But either way, can you just imagine living or being, you know, having going, having to go through something like that? Even though you, your life is snuffed out, you know, the moments, those moments, you know, and who knows how long these women, how long that they were in contact or in his presence before any of this happened. Though the idea of a single ripper had become the primary media narrative, law enforcement were looking for a number of killers. And they began, as they always did, with the suspects who might have some connection to the victims. Emma Lou Sharp 
did not identify her attacker as an acquaintance, but there was reason to believe that some of the previous victims had some sustained, if relatively brief, contact with their killer or killers. So, under mounting pressure, the Atlanta police began to make arrests. Our researcher found at least 20 men who were detained for homicides associated with the Ripper murders. And we weren't able to follow them all to their conclusions, whether that be trial or release or sentencing. Of the best-known suspects, though, two in particular stand out. Shortly after the murders of Lena Sharp and Sadie Holly, Henry Huff and Todd Henderson, both of Atlanta, were arrested in quick succession. Henry Huff was accused of the murder of Sadie Holly and Todd Henderson with the murder of Lena Sharp and the attack on Emma Lou. A witness came forward to accuse Henderson of the attack on Sadie Holly as well. Though Henry Huff was arrested first, the Constitution noted that officers had been looking for Henderson for days, but that he had, quote, eluded them. He was not arrested until July 17th, the same day it was reported that the state government and not just the citizens, had decided to offer a reward. The Constitution reported that information leading to the arrest of the Atlanta Ripper would be worth $250 paid by the governor, which is a little over $7,000 in 2020 currency. But before Henderson's arrest came the capture of Henry Huff on or about the 12th of July, when only LLE's reward of $25 was in place. It would come to pass that the Atlanta police would hold two Ripper suspects at the same time, which is rare, particularly when the suspects were not suspected of knowing each other or working together. The first, Henry Huff, was in his late 20s at the time of his arrest. We found his census data from both 1910 and 1920. Henry was suspected of the murder of Sadie Holly, and per the Constitution, there was physical evidence that indicated that he had, at the least, been involved in some crime. He was arrested on July 12th. It seems that witness statements led police to Huff, and the reward, offered by LLE, had been publicized much that week, so identification was certainly on the minds of Atlanta. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. There are numerous reports on Huff's arrest in the Constitution and the Georgian, which Jeff Wells summarizes in his book, quote, Huff's trousers were covered in dirt and blood. Huff had a wound on his head, 
which he had sustained in a Purim fight. He claimed that this was the source of the blood on his clothes. Police also found suspicious scratches on Huff's arms, which appeared to have been made by fingernails, end quote. Henry Huff seemed to be a strong suspect, especially because of those wounds. And witnesses placed him with Sadie Holly that night. In fact, a later article would feature the sworn testimony of a cab driver who said he'd seen them together. Per the Constitution, quote, Huff and the woman quarreled nearly all the way, end quote. The cabbie reported that he'd left them at the corner of Atlanta Avenue and Ormond Street, in front of a cornfield that would eventually become part of the crime scene. On July 13th, the Constitution published an article that began, quote, Two Jack the Rippers, both suspected of the same murder, are confined to the police station. Though the article mentions both suspects who were being held, Henry Huff and Todd Henderson, the focus is on Henderson, and not because of the attack on Lena Sharp, but rather the circumstantial evidence supporting his guilt in the murder of Sadie Holly. In 1911, Todd Henderson was in his late 30s, neither too old or too young to fit the description. There weren't bloody clothes, no scratches or marks, but he lived within blocks of at least half a dozen of the crimes. The strongest evidence, though, Emma Lou Sharp picked Henderson out of a lineup and said he was the man who tried to murder her. According to the Constitution, the police had been looking at Henderson for some time. But what had tipped them off? Was it simply that he fit the description? But according to the papers, it wasn't detailed. Tall, slim, or well-built, that depended on the source, black male, well-dressed. When he came in for the lineup, Henderson was compared to one other man. Emily sat before both of them and listened to them repeat the same phrase, the one she'd heard out on that street when she'd been looking for her mother, when someone had stabbed her from behind. Jeff Wells, author of The Atlanta Ripper, spent considerable time reconstructing Emily's experience and how certain or uncertain her identification had actually been. The sad part of the epic here is that when Emily Sharp went in and had to face her, her would-be killer, she was facing the murderer of her mother. Yes, Lena Sharp did die. He did attack and kill her. So she's not only, think about where she was at that moment. Not only was she facing the man who attempted to murder her, she was facing the man who, who killed her mother, if everything equaled out to be true. When she saw him and was asked, is this the man that attacked you, basically, she said, to the best of my knowledge. So a good lawyer can take and do anything with that. But even on the surface there, to the best of my knowledge, you know, my grandmother used to say, well, to the best of my memory, or if memory doesn't fail me. Well, what that does is it couches that into a certain area in a certain air of doubt. And so police were not exactly sure. And then, of course, Henderson had a little bit of a field day with that, too. But they made him speak to her and repeat the line that she said he said to her. And when he did that, she jumped back and was horrified. He did fit the description. He did have the clothing that she claimed he had or that her attacker was wearing. Emma Lou was not the only person to offer an identification. Though, as the Constitution noted, hers was not fully positive. 
On the night of Lena Sharp's murder, a clerk at the same market she should have visited reported seeing Todd Henderson on the street. And although Henry Huff was being held for Sadie Holly's murder, another witness put Sadie Holly with Henderson on the night that she died. The Constitution specifically mentions a man who'd been at a local drugstore at the corner of Decatur and Pryor Streets and who had reported that he'd seen Todd Henderson with Sadie Holly. Police also told journalists that Henderson's feet were a close match for the shoe prints found in the mud at the scene of Sadie Holly's death. The paper purports to include a quote from Todd Henderson himself, said to law enforcement, quote, Well, sir, you know if I was going to kill anybody, I would have long ago killed my wife. The Constitution also describes Todd Henderson as having been arrested while at a beer salon, quote, spying on his wife, and reports casually that, quote, he'd said to have cut her up two or three times before. So, with two seemingly equal Ripper suspects in jail, Fulton County Court decided to bring them both to trial. And during the weeks that followed their arrests, there weren't any more murders, but the public wasn't ready to let down their guard. Finally, Atlanta police beefed up their patrols. Specifically, they put eight undercover officers on the night beat to patrol areas where the attacks had occurred or where they might occur. The Constitution does not explicitly state this, but we assume those officers were white. There's no record that the city answered the community's call for Black detectives who would have moved more unobtrusively through the streets that needed the most protection. About this time in late July, several officials, including the chief of detectives, published letters in defense of law enforcement's response to the murders and the robberies. In the July 14th issue of the Atlanta Georgian, Chief Lanford listed the murders his department had solved since 1909. Some of these included victims that had been listed in Reverend Proctor's petition, which you heard at the top of the episode. According to Lanford, three of those women's murders had been solved. Addie Watts, Lucinda McNeil, and Sarah Dukes. Sarah Dukes had died of a gunshot wound in 1910 and apparently two men had been convicted of her murder. One was given 12 months for assault and battery. Lucinda McNeil's death came later, during the Ripper series, and Chief Lanford said that her husband had been convicted of cutting her throat. Whether or not it was a Ripper copycat murder, we don't know. We're not even sure of the evidence upon which he was convicted. It's apparent that these cases were not well publicized, or Proctor and his associates would have been aware of their outcomes. Addie Watts, the latest victim on his list, was the woman whose death had so frightened Emmalou Sharp. According to Chief Lanford, a man, not either of the suspects being held for the Ripper murders, had been bound over for her killing. Though Lanford's list was meant to quiet growing complaints, it also presented another question. Should the public consider themselves safe with Huff and Henderson in jail or could copycat crimes pose a real threat? As far as we can tell, this was never explored. With the establishment of the governor's reward in mid-July, more information, reported as fact in the Constitution, though with varying degrees of verification offered, began to fill the news. It seems that Todd Henderson was the focus of most of these tips. Apparently, a man who claimed to have seen Sadie Holly with Todd Henderson was shown her body, 
while her coffin was in progress to her funeral, and he told police that she was indeed the woman he'd seen with Henderson. Other support included Todd Henderson being, quote, nervous when he spoke to police, and that he contradicted himself. Several more witnesses then reported seeing Henderson with Sadie Holly and the days leading up to her death, implying that they'd had some relationship before the crime. And Henderson apparently owned a razor, though he told police he didn't, and he'd had it sharpened soon after the murder of Sadie Holly. Other tips connected him back to Lena Sharp, including, as Jeff Wells noted in the Atlanta Ripper, a local street vendor who produced a bloody cloth. The vendor claimed that Henderson had dropped it after the murder of Lena. Though the murders had ceased, for the moment, papers stayed focused on the Ripper. When some razors were stolen from a private home in mid-July, the Constitution wondered if the Ripper was restocking. Locals continued to hold meetings, and the mayor was asking for regular reports on the police department's progress. By August, both Huff and Henderson were facing criminal proceedings, separately, and the death of Sadie Holly. There hadn't been enough to charge Henderson with Lena Sharp's murder. This legal strategy is confusing at best. And Huff was indicted with Henderson still waiting in jail. And then, on the last day of August, there was another murder. Henry Huff was still being held in the county jail when the body of 20-year-old Mary Ann Duncan was found. Her throat had been cut, and, like Sadie Holly, her shoes had been removed. This could have been a developing signature, but Sadie's missing shoes had been noted in the local papers, so a copycat could have taken note. Two men were arrested, but the Constitution didn't name them. By November 10th, there have been two more murders, one that might be part of the Ripper pattern and one that certainly was, but there was also a terrifying escalation of brutality. November 10th was a Friday, and by Sunday, the details of the death of many wise have been published in the Constitution. She, quote, was knocked in the head, dragged some distance, and her throat cut in a lonely field the same location where two other women's bodies have been found. According to the article, her shoes were, quote, cut off, and her right index finger, quote, hacked off at the middle joint. Her body was discovered by a local child. Before Thanksgiving, the Atlanta police would be fielding increasingly furious public outcry. And in turn, they blamed Atlanta's Black community for, quote, knowing more than they tell and allegedly not aiding in the investigation. So, what about Todd Henderson and Henry Huff? Henry Huff had been brought to trial that fall, and he was eventually acquitted of the murder of Sadie Holly on November 26, three days after Thanksgiving. Prosecutors were surprised, but according to the Georgian, Huff's defense team had been strong and it provided explanations for his bloody clothing and brought in character witnesses that would have appealed to an all-white jury, namely well-known white businessmen. And Todd Henderson? The case against Todd Henderson had seemed stronger from the outset, but based on a December 27th article, the charges were dismissed some months earlier. 
Our research assistant found the date of August 30th, 1911 for Todd Henderson's release. So, a day before the body of Marianne Duncan was found. Marianne Duncan, you'll remember, was the first death to come after the arrest of Henry Huff and Todd Henderson. And she was the second woman to have her shoes taken from the scene of the crime. The first had been Sadie Holly, for whose murder Todd Henderson had been arrested. Though the Atlanta Constitution did not follow Henderson's case very closely, we were able to find information in another paper. As far as we know, previously unreported in any other contemporary source concerning Todd Henderson's release. According to the Atlanta Georgian, Todd Henderson's lawyers argued that he'd been held too long without indictment and filed a habeas corpus writ. So though the papers didn't publicize it, he was actually free for the bloodiest murders with the closest signatures in 1911. Many who have looked at this case assumed Henderson was in custody longer, long enough to be unable to commit those August and November murders. But he wasn't. He was free, and Atlanta wasn't safe. And yet, as far as we know, Todd Henderson was never questioned again, even as 1912 dawned and some of the bloodiest murders in the series credited to the Atlanta Ripper continued. It's clear enough why the judge released Todd Henderson. Holding two men for the same crime, one unindicted, should never stand. But the pattern that emerged after August 30th, the missing shoes, the elevated violence, could Henderson truly have been the Atlanta Ripper? And if so, how long did he continue killing? Next time on The Fall Line, our final episode covering the story of the Atlanta Ripper. How did the 1914 murder of Mary Fagan, a child worker at the Atlanta Pencil Company, affect the resolution of the Ripper cases? And with all the murders that occurred in 1912 and beyond, could a single suspect still be at large? Were they copycat crimes or had authorities already let the killer go free? Fear of the phantom killer would stretch into the 1920s and even outside the city limits. And a series of Jack the Ripper-like notes would further complicate the investigation. We'd like to thank all the listeners who've taken the time to support our sponsors, leave us reviews, or support our show directly on Patreon. We couldn't do it without you. Special thanks to Angie Dodd. The Fall Line is created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove and is produced by Maura Curry. Written and hosted by Laura Norton with interviews by Brooke Hargrove. The chief researcher for this series is Shannon Geary who spent last summer immersed in the Atlanta News Archives, and she did an amazing job. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon. Theme music is by RJR. Special thanks to Dr. Jeff Wells and to Dion Clark of The Sage Podcast for reading the quotes at the opening of each of these episodes. You can hear more from Dion on The Sage Podcast, which is, quote, devoted to critical conversations on literature by and about Black women. The first episode, which dropped recently, features a discussion of Toni Morrison's Beloved with guest Anastasia Lawson from Georgia State University. Future episodes will include literary works on or by Black women in the U.S. and Global South. Voice acting was provided by J.B. Hampton Van Sant. 
JV is a writer, podcaster, and voice actor based out of Western Massachusetts. You can hear their voice on Crime and Color, Wannabe Film Buffs, and Red Wing the Audio Drama. You can hire them on voice123.com. Be sure to follow The Fall Line on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We'll be back next week with a conclusion to this story. Thank you.